Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us here on Rupture Radio for our latest episode. Um, I'm Des Henley, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Finn Dwyer. Finn is the person behind the Irish History Podcast, which is one of Ireland's very first podcasts and one of its most uh, popular. Uh, Finn has had over 2,000 reviews with an average rating of 4.7 stars, which is impressive and also enviable. Uh, and it's a podcast that provides fascinating historical analysis and insight from the famine to the you know the, the Norman invasion era back through to the Irish partisans and the, the civil war. Um, and if you go to the, the, the URL irishhistorypodcast.ie, you'll find a vast amount of content there that I think you'll find very, very interesting. So, Finn, I'd like to welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Des. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Um, and <clears throat> in today's episode, what the era we'd like to focus on and ask you to talk a bit about is the the uh, famine era in particular. Um, and you know, you've do, done a huge amount of work on that, and a lot of the the content from your podcast is on that. Um, so, I want to go there, but maybe as an introduction to that. If you could talk to us a bit about your own background in, in, in history as a discipline, um, and what brought you to establish your own pad, podcast, and and what other areas do you cover in there? Um, I'm actually, my background is actually in archaeology, but uh, I've always had an interest in history, and I used to work in archaeology. And then in 2008, kind of the archaeology industry um, more or less collapsed during the recession. And around the same time, I kind of fell ill, so I didn't have a lot of, I wasn't able to work for a long time. I was reading a lot of history, and at that time, it was medieval history. Um, and just a podcast kind of came out, I suppose, as a way to do something with the stuff I was reading or to read with a purpose, maybe. And then over time, um, the podcast grew out of there. I suppose when it started out, very few people would have even been aware of what a podcast was. The first question you'd have with people like we'd have to explain what a podcast was um and then like over the last five or six years i've kind of i made a series on medieval history and then over the last five or six years i've moved into the modern period starting with um a three-year series on the great famine and then i'm currently making a series on the irish war of independence and then i've covered other other topics like as you mentioned, um, Irish people who fought in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, um, then just individual incidents that would have just always piqued my interest, like, for example, just like the Mam the murders or the Phoenix Park murders. So, yeah, it's covered, I suppose, uh, some huge topics and some minor topics. Okay, yeah, very good. And there's a lot in there that I know Rupture listeners would be interested in. So, um, yeah, so... Just focusing on the, the famine era then, just and by way of introduction to that, obviously something that uh, still resonates through history t today and shapes Irish society in many ways. And maybe you could talk initially about your view of the economic and the political and the social context uh, that created the conditions that led to the, the catastrophe that was the Irish famine. Yeah, so I suppose Irish society on the eve of the famine is generally speaking more complex than 
were often maybe taught in school or the, the popular, uh, you know, ideas w- would lead us to believe. So Irish society on the eve of the famine is, there's, in terms of classes, there's like a quite a wide range of classes. A class structure varies across the country. So you have a huge amount of change flowing out in the early 19th century out of Irish agriculture, which I suppose is a good place to start, uh, is the, still dominates the economy. Ireland had had a very limited amount of industrial development in the late 18th century. By the early 19th century, that's beginning to stall. The reasons for that are quite complex and historians debate a lot about them. The Act of Union in 1800 certainly didn't help, whether it was the exact cause of Ireland's economic uh, or sorry, industrial decline is debated. But certainly, if we go to the year 1815, it's well established by this point that Ireland's industry, the limited amount of industry the country had is in steep decline. And um, agricultural economy dominates economic activity and economic life on the island, which while that might be the case in all countries in Europe at the time, that trend of industry being in decline in the early 19th century and agriculture, I suppose, growing is not necessarily what you'd expect. You expect industry to be growing. So Irish society is, uh, agriculture is growing, but that agricultural economy varies massively uh, in various parts of the country. So after 1815, you have an economy that's uh, heading into a recession. Um, Irish agriculture had boomed during the Napoleonic Wars. They come to an end in 1815. Uh, trade between Britain and the uh, continent resumes and Ireland's uh, the economic, uh, sorry, agricultural prices, which have been quite high, then collapse. Um, you have a switch from that point on in the east of the country towards uh, ranching, what would become the ranchers of the late 19th century. That's already started in places like Mead. Um, and what you get out of this is these large amounts of land being cleared to facilitate pasture and large cattle, a large uh, cattle farms. And you then get what's called conacre tenants living at the edge of this. This is small, impoverished people who rent very small plots of land from year to year. Now, what's important in terms of the famine about these people is that they live a very precarious existence. They uh, survive on potatoes. They live on tiny plots of land. They're raising quite small or quite large families on these plots of land. But in terms of wealth, they have very little wealth uh, or what we might call, I suppose, a reserve that, you know, they have no money for the rainy day. In the West of Ireland, then you have a different uh, structure where you have a lot of small tenant farmers who will rent up to five, 10 acres of land. Uh, in some cases more, uh, they are often, these. they often rent the land through middlemen men, a kind of a complex structure of land management and ownership that's not very, uh, that doesn't read, that allows subdivision, for example, where fathers will divide these farms between all their sons rather than passing it on to one son. And while that might seem egalitarian, it's not a great idea if that goes on for three or four generations and a 20 acre farm has been broken into 20 individual uh, acre plots of which no one can really survive. Now, those small tenant farmers are also extremely precarious and extremely uh, extremely precarious and extremely vulnerable to anything, any changes in the economy. At the same time, then in the south of the island, you have a, and I know this is often kind of complex, but one thing that's important, you have large enough uh, 
are, I suppose, middling, what's often called middling kind of farmers in counties like Kilkenny, Tipperary, East Cork, who have, you know, maybe 30, 40 acres of land and they grow crops for uh, export and they're going to export food every year. They're also important in terms of the famine. If they're the groups that form Irish society, in the 30 years before the famine, you have a, um, a general impoverishment of Irish society, a growth in poverty, a growth in population. Agric- the agricultural economy is not doing well. That said, there are improvements happening in many areas of the country in terms of uh, some landlords are reclaiming land and some landlords are managing land but overall the trends are uh, to a population a a section of the population is growing rapidly which is also uh, very vulnerable uh, from to external shocks you might say and these are people who live a very precarious existence at the edge of 19th century society. And this is recognised in numerous government reports at the time. The British government conduct several reports uh, into Irish poverty uh, through the 19th century, and they've got a very good understanding of the nature of poverty in Ireland. In fact, they do this to come up with a, a state solution in, in the poor law. Well, it's not really a solution to poverty. It's a way of dealing with poverty um, in the poor laws, which open workhouses. But I guess if you wanted to do, to do summarize Irish society on the eve of the famine, you've got about 3 million people who eat very little other than potatoes and are certainly totally dependent on potatoes, who live a very precarious existence outside of that. Um, they, in some areas, are paying quite high rents for land because there's such a competition for land. Um, and then you have a quite a stratified society above them. You have those small farmers I mentioned, or sorry, those middling farmers I mentioned who export cattle. You've got ranchers, bigger farmers in the east of the country. Then you obviously have the landlords, which dominate a lot of narratives who own all the land. Uh, they also vary in size from you might have a landlord that would have, you know, eight, nine hundred acres to some of the huge landlords that would have tens of thousands of acres. Okay. And just to pick up on a couple of things there, you, you talked about the decline of nascent industry in Ireland there. And certainly um, one of the commonly cited causes of that would be British policy. It would be it would have um, that, that, that there would be an active uh, policy to decline industries that could compete with with Britain. Is that a fair assessment? Or you seem to indicate that there were other factors as well that are part of de- a debate that's going on around this. Could you just talk a little more about that? No, I think the Act of Union, which amalgamates Ireland into the United Kingdom coming into effect in 1801, undoubtedly has that effect. For example, there was talk about trying to protect Irish industry in the negotiations of the Act of Union. And the, the idea was that they would slowly bring in the free trade area within the United Kingdom, that would slowly be introduced over a 40-year period. Um, the free trade lobby in England get that, like get all tariffs removed. I think it's about 1824 is the last of them are removed. So that creates, uh, that exposes these industries to, um, to uh, British industry. Now that said, there is exceptions to this. Belfast becomes an industrial hub of shipbuilding, linen, uh, production and there's other big in engineering works in, in Belfast as well. Um, but British policy doesn't help. That's one factor. Irish industry is naturally at a bit of a, 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 a disadvantage for geographical reasons. Like it's, it's, it's often cited that there's something greatly British about the Industrial Revolution. 
that's not true. British people lived in the British Isles, which gave them everything you needed for the Industrial Revolution. People in Ireland didn't have the resources at hand, so that puts them at a disadvantage. Um, Ireland doesn't have, like, for example, the native supplies of coal and really the, the supplies of coal you have in Ireland just aren't as good. So coal it has to be imported. But they're all minor issues. I think what you've alluded to there is the key issue, is what the British government do and what their vision of the Act of Union after the Act of Union is, is that Ireland is going to become a breadbasket for the United Kingdom and that Dublin in particular is not going to become an industrial, is not going to become a competition for the Manchesters or anywhere in the industrial triangle. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And on on the agricultural side of things, and you you talked through the changing nature uh, of agriculture there, and in in preparing the ground for the famine, if I can put it that way, um, you know what what role did agroecology play ultimately in the famine through um, you mentioned about these uh, creating smaller and smaller plots of land which presumably were you know much more intensified in, in their use um, so do you see that and effects on the say the quality of the soil um, uh, and other agricultural factors in creating the conditions leading up to the start of the famine what, what part do you think that was playing? Yeah, I think it's probably limited in that, like, like there's a lot of, or it, it's a complex picture. We can't say, for example, that soil degradation, we can't make a statement saying soil degradation, degradation is the root cause of the famine, for example, because there's lots of evidence actually in the British government have these like volume after volume of reports into the most minute like uh, uh, details of Irish life in the 19th century and they provide fascinating detail but you can see it in that there's like what's called at the time improvements going on where land is being limed sort of I'm doing research at the moment on a place in West Tipperary in the 19th in the early 19th century and they're building roads into like the Shleaflay and Phelan Mountains to bring in lime to improve the land there um, and that's not that unusual now you do have places out in the west of Ireland that nothing is being done that said potatoes can kind of be grown in very poor land and that's one of the reasons that they are being adopted that they can grow like I suppose a better way of, of, of discussing this might be the health of the population you know that's always going to be um, a measure of a population and while Irish people on the eve of the famine and this might sound contradictory but it's not Irish people on the eve of the famine are very poor but they're relatively are comparatively healthy so if you look at the records of the East India Company Army which is being recruited in England to fight for the East India Company in India at the time uh, the British Empire is running India through the East India Company. But anyway, that, that, that company is hiring thousands and thousands of soldiers. Many of them are coming from Ireland. On average, the, a rural Irish person is about an inch, I think it's an inch taller than a recruit from an English city. Now, an inch mightn't seem like much. It's quite a lot if they're on average that height. And there's lots of other anecdotal accounts of people coming to Ireland, commenting on the way, you know, like that people look healthy. Now, you have to be obviously very wary of, of, of uh, anecdotal accounts, but it's generally accepted that the potato provided a healthy diet. Now, the problem, like any, like, you know, we, we know this today, it's a problem that if you are reliant on one crop, you expose yourself to the, 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 the dependency on that crop. And if something happens to that crop, then you're in very serious trouble. But what I would 
argue is a much more important thing is inequality on the eve of the famine. That's a much, much more important aspect in the story of the famine than say, like there's a lot of agricultural improvement going on in our Irish society is a far more, um, I suppose, uh, robust, dynamic place on the eve of the famine than we often imagine. I have talked a lot about poverty there, but it's not just these kind of, uh, the people living in Ireland are not these kind of lemmings walking towards the edge of the cliff, unable to seize control. People are like people and people with means in, a, in some parts of the country are undertaking efforts to maximize productivity on their estates in terms of land improvement. Like we often talk about, uh, you know, problems being, for example, uh, uh, absentee landlords and absentee landlords are landlords that live overseas. Sometimes that was actually the best thing that could happen to an estate because if the landlord isn't around, you don't have some feckless fool who doesn't know anything about agriculture intervening. Whereas some of the wealthier, for example, the Dukes of Devonshire who owned a lot of Waterford would send over estate managers who are experts in agriculture and they would oversee development. Now that's, but the problem is they're overseeing a development that's mass that leads to a massively unequal society. So I think from a narrow perspective, um, you know, maybe if we just look at it with our economic hat on in terms of like, uh, is Irish society changing? Yes, it is. But there is a huge problem of inequality developing in Ireland on the eve of the famine. And I think that's probably the best way to understand what happens after 1845. Yeah, okay. And that brings us through to, to where I wanted to go next in just of, you know, once this catastrophe then exploded so suddenly uh, on Irish society, can you just talk about, you know, what were the effects of that on Irish society and the Irish people, which, it, as you've said, in some respects, it was, it was a country with a growing population. Uh, it had, you know, had relatively healthy people, as some of those records had indicated, as robust and dynamic in, in a lot of ways but then this huge inequality as well. Um, so how did all that play out in terms of the, the devastating consequences it ha had on Irish society? And the famine begins in September 1845 when blight is first spotted, first initially around Dublin, relatively quickly spreads across the island. The British government do take immediate action and they send a scientific commission to Ireland to try and get a handle on what this is. No one knows what it is. And um, that scientific commission come back with a really damning report telling them this is going to wipe out the potato crop and in Britain they know what that means in Ireland if the potato crop is lost it's not, it's not a case that people don't really understand what would happen on the ground in Ireland uh, people do what they have always done I should, I should say food shortages in Ireland are not uncommon there's been about 20 failures of the potato crop be either regional or temporary or partial failures already in the 19th century by this point. So people do, they have survival strategies. They pawn tools in the, you know, like fishermen pawn nets and boats, farmers pawn tools. In some occasions, they might sell some of their clothes uh, and they get money to buy food and pay their rent. Um, Daniel O'Connell, probably the most prominent Irishman at the time, um, goes uh, to the... Um, sets up something called the Mansion House Committee, which is kind of a, a relief committee. They go to the Viceroy of, Ar of Ireland, the Lord Lieutenant, which was on the eve of the famine, um, a man called, um, oh, his name, uh, 
uh, Hewsbury, and they ask him to carry out a series of measures, including port closures. That's a tried and tested measure in the British Empire uh, to for famine relief. Now, it has to be done very carefully. If you close ports indefinitely, uh, merchants across Europe, for example, just wouldn't trade into Ireland if the ports are closed indefinitely. But if you do it for a short, sharp uh, amount of time at the correct moment, what will happen is they'll stop uh, it'll stop the export of key amounts of food from the country. And they ask for that. They ask for to, to ban distillation for a couple of months because obviously they're using it's a very small amount of food, but they are using uh, barley or whatever for that. And um, the British government refuse all these measures because they're adopting a laissez-faire economic approach to the famine where they feel that the market should be allowed run. It's of course that the Tories are in power and the Tories aren't as extreme as other parties in England about this. Um, one thing they do on the, um, they do do though, the government of Robert Peel is that they buy in a th- £100,000 of food in secret. They do it in secret so merchants and the free market forces won't realise that this is happening. And the idea then is that they're going to drip that onto the market in 1846 to keep prices at an affordable level. Now, ultimately, all these things that I've talked about, so uh, people doing their best to survive, very, very limited government action, and then that combined with the fact that the blight isn't as bad in 1845 as initially predicted, saves Ireland. And in the first year of the famine, it's generally agreed that no one really dies or very, very few people die. What's a crisis turns into a huge catastrophe of unequal proportions in 1846. uh, And this happens for a couple of reasons. Blight returns much earlier that year, so it devastates the crop. In about July of 1846, most of the crop is lost. That's combined with a shift in power in Britain, where the Tories are pushed out of power and the Liberal government take take office. The Liberals are absolutely committed to free trade in a pretty crude, I would say there's no sophistication in it whatsoever. Um, So people like the... Prime Minister is Lord John Russell, but maybe the more ideological people behind him is a guy called Charles Wood, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and then the leading civil servant of the day, Charles Edward Trevelyan. And they're like basically starting to adopt the idea that they can test out essentially free trade ideas or free market ideas on Ireland at the time where essentially the market, a free market allowed to operate will solve the famine. That winter things get really bad. In Ireland, hundreds of thousands of people will starve in the winter of 1846 into 47. They have no resources left. They've pawned everything they've had. They're, these are the people I talked about earlier who are already on the precipice. They have nothing. They've, they've done what they can to, to, to use what very limited resource they have the previous year and they start to, to die in huge numbers. The British government refused to intervene until it's too late. Eventually, they do put orders in for food in America. They put them in too late. They can't arrive till 1847. And what you have actually in 1846 to 47, probably eventually you end up with a food shortage in Ireland, which is pretty spectacular because they've actually exported a huge amount of food out of the country. But they've created this situation in the winter of 1846 by allowing not only by refusing to really engage in the import of food, but also insisting that the export of food be allowed to continue. So in the winter of 1846, or sorry, in the autumn of 1846, there's a pretty good harvest brought in of crops other than potatoes. And those crops would be things like wheat, rye, oats to a lesser extent, butter, cheese, things like that. That's all exported out of the country. Uh, 
that obviously that creates chaos in Ireland. There's huge riots across all the southern ports to try and stop this happening to little avail because there's a huge amount of soldiers accompanying this food. But that allows the British government, that leaves a situation with Ireland facing a complete catastrophe by January 1847. Government action had made the situation worse. The one thing they did do was institute a, a program of public works where you could work on public works be given meager wages and you could use them to buy food. Again, it's this idea of uh, laissez-faire economics. You can't just give out money. You have to keep the market functioning. The wages they're giving out on those public works are too small to feed a family. The work is too hard for starving people. And you actually have a situation where people are dying on these relief works by, say, you're talking about by January 1847. There's actually letters in loads of Irish papers and English papers as well of people dying, written from places like West Cork, all across the country, really, of people dying on these public works. And you mentioned there about riots and, and resistance to food exports. Um, and you know, and and you spoke as well about you know the Irish people didn't just quietly acquiesce and walk towards their their fate. There was resistance. Um, so I'm just interested in in you talking about what happened there. And and of course at the time, 1848 was a very significant year across Europe, and that there was a massive revolutionary wave that swept across Europe. And my understanding understanding is that that had some echoes in Ireland as well. So I'd just be interested in, in you talking about what was happening in that respect. In terms of famine resistance, the big year is late 1846. That's where you get this huge, I suppose, social upheaval. It's not coordinated, really. It's like starving people doing what they can to survive. They're trying to stop the export of, of, of food through these ports. So, you know, places like Kenny, Waterford, Clonmel, Carrigan-Shore, Yall, Cork, any, you know, big kind of port town or regional town across the south and southeast. Oftentimes they used to do, they'd march through a town with a loaf of bread on a stick and they'd often, the chant would be bread or blood. They'd sack bakeries, they'd sack mills because mills is often where you'd have crops waiting to be ground into flour to be exported. Um, ultimately, it has a limited, very, very limited impact because, you know, they're, it, it, they're fighting the economic system of the British Empire and a riot in Kilkenny can only have so much of an impact on that. Um, after that, in 1847, sorry, after the export of that uh, harvest, really severe starvation sets in in Ireland and people's capacity to resist is very much weakened. The 1848 rebellion, there is a rebellion in Ireland in 1848. It's, 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 it's limited. It's not the same people who are resisting the famine in 1846, really. I think there are more a different group of Irish society, probably a bit wealthier. Um, I think it was was it William Smith O'Brien or maybe uh, James Fintan Lawler, one of the the rebels uh, um, at the time, commented about like starving people can't fight. Like you know, there's only so much. So there's only a, there's a certain there's a lot of truth to that. Rather, the people who are starving from 1846 by 1848, they are not thinking about political like there's a huge support for political independence i think at that point but like you know people's the real the, the very poor have shifted onto a different struggle and by 1848 they're very much defeated and a lot of those people are have 
starved to death or facing the workhouse, facing eviction. You know, there's a there's lots of different struggles. You get a certain amount of resistance to evictions. Again, it's limited because evictions really only start in the famine in late 1847 into early 1848. Those, those evictions are... They're very widespread. There's about 50,000 evictions carried out in Ireland in the later years of the Great Famine. Um, resistance to them, again, is maybe not as coordinated as it will be in the 1870s during the land war. Um, you get individual assassinations, most famously of Captain Dennis Mahan, a landlord up in Roscommon who's shot uh, as he's carrying out um, prolonged evictions on his estates around Strokestown. He's shot uh, by... Uh, to two people uh, there uh, that's also formed by that's also impacted by the fact he had uh, paid for some of his tenants t- to migrate to Canada but their conditions on the ships had been appalling I think there was a death rate of about 30% and news of that arrived back but yeah eviction resistance to evictions again it's resistance to the famine I think if you wanted to talk about it, it's fractured between different groups of people experiencing things differently. Um, you also get workhouse riots right throughout the famine because of the inhumanity of workhouse regimes. But again, that's about the experience of the workhouse. And um, sometimes you'll have people outside the workhouse trying to break into the workhouse because they won't let them in and they're so hungry they want to get in. Then inside the workhouse, you can have situations where there's not enough food to feed people or a workhouse regime is brutal. It's it's not far. I think you can essentially say it is a prison regime. You can leave at any time, but if you're walking out to starvation, you can't really leave. Families are split up. Parents aren't able to see the children. Death rates are phenomenal. Like, for example, in the North Dublin Union workhouse, uh, which is on the DI, where uh, Grange Gorman, uh, the new campus on Grange Gorman, I think, might eventually cover that. It's beside where Grange Gorman Prison was. The workhouse was very close to that. But in, by May 1847, like there's 40, 50 people dying a week there. Um, this is where diseases of typhus and uh, typhoid are r- r- rampaging through the workhouses. Um, so... Like, I think while the resistance is fractured, it's worth bearing in mind the overarching policy from the, of the famine has been driven from London and is being shaped by an economic idea that, you know, they can implement essentially it's a laissez-faire economic policy, that a free market will be allowed to function as much as is possible. They will eventually intervene in very limited cases. Uh, so they won't do things like even in relief works, for example, to, to how ludicrous it got in relief works. They won't do relief works if they benefit an individual landlord. So a lot of the relief roads will build a road up into a mountain that goes nowhere. So they can't be accused of benefiting one landlord. And, you know, there's cases where, you know, a landlord would go, but look, if you build the road to whatever I have, it'll benefit the whole community because he might own whatever, you know, like they, they make these good cases. But the government insists that they build a road up a mountain to nowhere, like you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it is worth bearing in mind that that thread runs through government policy. And then it's important also to recognise it is shaped by racism. It's a very fair comment that has been made over the last 170 years that had this crisis unfolded in the home counties in England, would the response have been different? Of course it would. It's like just ridiculous to say it wouldn't. Um, so, and you can see the racism 
uh, at the time, not only in like magazines like Punch, but also in in the words of uh, uh, British politicians at the time, they don't hold back. And eventually, you know, the 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 most catastrophic of the conditions uh, began to lift, and famine conditions began to to ease. But uh, in what continued to be a very um, distressed and traumatized society. And I just wonder, what's your take on how this all played out? What's the legacy of the famine um, in the decades following it? But right through to today, how do you think it has shaped and warped Irish society? How do you think it's shaped our our physical environment, our, our landscape and our, our agriculture as well? Yeah. So, like, first of all, I think it's the most important event in our history by, and there's nothing that comes anywhere close to it. We've had it, whatever, the last, like, nearly 10 years now, we focused on the revolutionary period for obvious reasons. You know, it's, a, it's the political foundation of modern Ireland in a way, but that's only an outworking in many ways of the famine. Like, the tensions that built up in the famine. After the famine, I think you can make a good case that there's going to be a war of independence of some kind in Ireland because Irish people could go, being in the United Kingdom is not very good for us. And if anyone raised any questions about that, you could just immediately point to the famine and look at the detailed government reports of how they acted and go, there you are, there's the proof. And it was hard to argue against. In terms of, so I, that, that's just a general thing. I think it's always worth saying. It's, it, it's such an important event in our history. Ireland is devastated at the end of the famine. You have a million, in around a million people have died. By the end of the 1850s, maybe about 2 million people have emigrated. So like the population has collapsed. You have places out in the west of Ireland that are empty. Uh, Frederick Engels passes through Ireland at the time and talks about uh, parts of East Galway looking like a desert. And this is down to these huge evictions that have taken place, which the British government had created this situation where landlords didn't want to have poor tenants on their land because they had to pay poor rates for them. So even if you couldn't get anybody else, if you didn't want to do anything with the land, it was better to get the tenants off the land. The famine doesn't really end in the west of Ireland. We're well into the 1850s. If you look at workhouses out in the west, they're full right up into the late 1850s. So like you know, when we say about the famine ending, oftentimes you'll see the year 1851 as the year the famine ends. That year is really very arbitrary. There was a census carried out. You know, the censuses are carried out in 1841. There's another one in 1851. That provides us with a snapshot of how much the population had declined. And it's very, very useful. Uh, but the famine doesn't end in 1851. It had ended in Dublin and Belfast in 1849, probably, or 1850. Out in the West, it's much, much later. Agriculture again, changes in very different ways in different places is certainly starts to accelerate the drive towards kind of ranch, ranch farms, ranchers. The cause of these huge clearances that have taken place in the West, um, it forever changes the nature of the relationship between landlord and tenant. It had been terrible before the famine, but it was broken after the famine. And the land war, in a way, was probably, again, another, another thing that was going to come out of this. Like, there was no sense of trust or, like, fair play or... And, you know, you can look at this as it's kind of an unusual type of class war that had taken place during the famine in that the British government had basically almost thrown tenants and landlords into a box and said, you two fight it out and whoever comes out. Not, not that there were, it wasn't a case of whoever comes out. Obviously, landlords were going to win it. But the British government should have intervened there to stop that. It was, they created a situation where landlords had proven themselves to be 
ruthless people in Ireland and then let them out tenants essentially. Irish agriculture changes slowly. Labourers, landless labourers who had been kind of the, I suppose, the backbone of the Irish economy in one sense and that they had provided all the labour for the economy. They're the ones who are just more or less destroyed by the famine. There's hundreds of thousands of them left after the famine. But as a class, they're on the way out afterwards. Um, I suppose in the West, the, you could argue that it creates the insatiable desire for land. I'm sure it existed beforehand, but certainly during the land war, which started in Irish town in Mayo, which had been devastated during the famine. You know, the, the, the cats cried there and Parnell would make it in Davis and, you know, off platforms would say, you know, you lost your land or your first or your parents lost the land during the famine. Don't let it go yourself. You know, like that idea. And that's a very powerful idea that, you know, that they were going to make this stand. And it certainly influences a lot of how the land war is fought and that memory of the famine. In terms of Irish agriculture, I suppose it shifts the nature of it, I suppose, away from well, in some areas, it doesn't change really until the late 19th century. Like, you know, in the West of Ireland, you, you know, because the famine happens, that doesn't make, you know, poor people can't decide just to do things differently. You know, they survived on potatoes up until 1845. Now, potato crops kind of return in the 1850s. They have nothing else to survive on. Nothing else can grow in the, in, in the way that potatoes can grow to feed them. So they can't not, you know, like, well, they're very well aware of what the potato is like, uh, or, you know, how dangerous it is to live on one crop alone. They have no choice but to continue eating it. There's a huge transfer of land actually after the famine as well, which is significant, um, where a lot of Irish landlords go bankrupt during the famine and then immediately afterwards. And there's this huge transfer of land um, in the 10, 15, 20 years after the famine where you get uh, yeah, people investing in land for money. And these people definitely are looking on it in a slightly different way. And they're definitely interested in, um, you know, pastoral farming, maximizing. Um, they don't want to be dealing with loads of dead peasants, or as they would see, you know, like, but like a small laborers cutting uh, a crop of wheat to export. They just want cattle in there that will make, you know, that they are not very la labor intensive. You don't have to deal then with the dangers of landlord-tenant relationships, which are deadly at times in the 19th century in Ireland. Okay, thank you, Finn. We're pr pretty much out of time. Um, I think it's something we could talk uh, a lot more about. It's been absolutely fascinating to dive into what is an extraordinary period of Irish history and one, as you say, that really shapes uh, what we are today. And, and as I listened as you talk there, a lot of echoes in terms of economic and uh, ideological um, positions that, that are still taken today and in, in today's politics and uh, economics, you can you, you can see the, the thinking and the, and the brutal logic that has uh, out, uh, outcomes uh, that are inevitable and do so much damage. But um, thank you for your time, Finn. Uh, it's been great having you on Rupture Radio as Finn Dwyer of IrishHistoryPodcast.ie. Thank you very much for your time. Bit of makeup. You lost